Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. today's episode of Pebble in the Pond, we chat with Lyndon Riley. Lyndon is a bachelor Mananjali man who has lived the majority of his life in the, on the north central coast of Queensland in Mackay. Since 2012, Lyndon, Lyndon had been working full-time with the Royal Flying, Flying Doctors Service, Queensland section as a mental health promotion officer, but is currently employed full-time at the University of New South Wales Discipline of Psychiatry working on an MRFF-funded research project titled Enabling Dads Improving First Nations Adolescents' Mental Health across five far north Queensland First Nation communities, including Damaji, Kawanyama, the Arakan, Hopevale, and the Wadjul Wadjul. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Today we dive into the research Lyndon's currently involved in, as well as the main challenges that adolescents First Nations men are facing in today's society, including role models, the education system and goal setting. We talk about the men's empowerment programs that Lyndon's been a part of since 1994 and the impact seen in the community over the years. We also discuss about what needs to be done now to create real change for generations to come. Lyndon, a big warm welcome to you. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. I thought we'd kick off things by getting stuck into learning more about the incredible work you do, which is also the focus of your presentation today at the Indigenous Wellbeing Conference, which is addressing the social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men. Lyndon, can you please tell us about the work that you do and how your project Enabling Dads came about? First of all, thanks for having me. Oh, welcome. (laughs) Enabling Dads, um, Improving First Nations and Adelance and Mental Health come about actually from my PhD thesis. And throughout my PhD thesis, we got a NHMRC grant, which is a medical research future fund mm-hmm. to roll out this project within five Aboriginal communities in far north Queensland. It's Kaunyama, Dongaji, Hopevale, Arakoon and Woodjawoodjaw. So the the project itself is multi-pronged, I suppose. 
Firstly, it wants to test an intervention program that we want to deliver within the communities. It's, we want to measure the social and emotional well-being and empowerment of men. Mm-hmm. And we also want to measure the mental health of adolescents, children linked to the men who participate in the program. So it's a random control trial. So what we're looking at in each community, getting as many men as we can to test this program. So in the in the proposal, we're looking at 42 men in each community. Mm. Realistically, we probably won't get that in some of those communities because they're small. Yeah. So like example, like Woodja Woodja, maybe Hopevale. So we can, um, yeah, so we can just test the program and see if it works. So it's random control. So for example, if we get 10 men and 10 adolescents trial linked to those dads or those participants, we'll get them all do pre and post surveys. Mm-hmm. So pre surveys is exactly the same as a post surveys. And then we'll split the men into two two groups, the intervention group and the control group. We do the program, right, it's going to be run over two weeks. So the intervention fellows that I'll do the program, the, the control group, they'll just go and do normal stuff in the community, what they normally do, maybe tens of men's groups, do a, we'll catch up with those guys and do a, like a relaxation therapy program with them. After the two weeks and the, the adolescents, they just, they just fill out the surveys and then they don't, don't attend anything either. Mm-hmm. So after two weeks, we get all the participants back, that's the men and the, the adolescents, get them to fill out all those sur- survey, the same surveys again. And hopefully the men who do the intervention program, their scores should be higher. Mm-hmm. If their scores are higher, then the control group, same with the adolescents. If the, the adolescents who's connected to the dads who did the intervention program, their score should be higher too. If if that's the case, the program works. Mm-hmm. And then we'll write up some, you know, submissions to get further funding so we can roll out the program within those communities first. But there, from there, it's, it's a workable document so it can be mm. distributed right throughout the you know, Queensland first and we'll go from there. So when you talk about the survey that's distributed, I mean, I'm not sure if you can go through the questions that are asked, but what's the focus in terms of like how do you gather that data based on the questions that you ask and then come up with, I guess, a solution? Yeah. Is that what the focus really is? That's that's really is the focus. Yeah. The, the surveys for the men, there's actually four surveys in one. Mm-hmm. The first part of the survey is what we call the GEM. It's a growth and measurement empowerment tool that has been validated. It's a psychometric tool that I sort of worked on with the University of Queensland back on another project years ago called AIM High. Mm-hmm. It's an Australian integra- integrated mental health initiative. And we developed this tool to measure empowerment and it's been validated. It's, there's papers written about it, so it does work. So and what it's sort of ticking boxes. There's no really no really writing down mm-hmm. questions and all that sort of stuff. Right. I may mean answers to questions. It's just what basically ticking, okay. ticking boxes. So hopefully, and they're rated from like some boxes are one to five, five being really good, one being not so good. Yeah, sure. And with and there's some some scenarios within the within the survey where it's one to seven. So seven being the really best and one being poor. Mm. So once we get back, we'll calculate that score and crunch the numbers and then analyse the data. And then with regards to that project now, we've got a lot of data out of Doomagee. Mm-hmm. So that's currently being analysed now. 
Awesome. That sounds really interesting. So it sort of watch the space and yeah. the results. So it's in early days, this project, would you say? Well, yes. It's because it's a federal funded project and because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the project is supposed to finish end next year, but they've extended over 12 months for another 12 months. So I'll finish in 2024. Yeah. But in saying they extended the project, but they didn't extend and gave us more money. <laughs> so, Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> it's all, um, yeah. So, but in saying that, we'll get the job. Awesome. When it comes to looking at addressing the social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men, what do you feel is missing in services that are currently available to assist with their overall well-being? Uh, the thing that's, I think, more there should be more on country activities because mm. you talk to a lot of men in community, they believe that they need to get on country. It's about the, when we talk about social and emotional well-being, it's that spiritual com- component mm. to it. So. Being on country, they feel like they can open up more. Mm. So that's missing, I think, within within some of the service providers that are going in communities. A lot of service providers are going in there sort of, you know, sort of ticking boxes. Yeah. They're not really going in there to sort of sit down with the men and yarn about, you know, what's best, mm-hmm. their best interest mm-hmm. with well, regards to social and emotional well-being. When it comes to, I guess, if you will, whose responsibilities this would fall on on their shoulders per se, yep. who would be leading these type uh, of yep. initiatives? Would it be yep. elders in the community or? It would be led by, um, so we were talking about social emotional being, it would be led by health committees within mm-hmm. these communities mm-hmm. and driven by them, but also in collaboration with Aboriginal medical services that go fly and fly out of. Um, sure. Their community control services that fly and fly out of these communities. For example, like in Dormagy, it's, it's Gigi Healing. Okay. And and they're supposed to run programs with men. I know they've got money there to run programs with men. And in saying that, I think they have been doing stuff on country, which is really good to see. Mm-hmm. And they're getting a really lot out of it. Like fellas, when they go in country, they're hunting for, especially in Dormagy, they go and hunt, you know, bush, bush tucker. Yep, yep. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. So literally going back to the grassroots. Yeah, yeah, just going back to the grassroots. Yeah. But it's it's what makes them stand tall, you know, going, mm. going, going on country, you know, doing that hunting and gathering and all that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. and, but taking their kids with them yeah. so, that, so, they, so they, their children can see that, that they're acting, you know, they're role modelling for their children. Mm. Yeah. Such an important factor, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about what are the main challenges that uh, adolescent First Nations men are being met with today? Just on your, I guess, you know, travels, your experiences yep. and the work that you do, what are you seeing? Yep. Well, it's going back to those role models, there's a lack of mm. role models in community. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of within communities, and not not so much Aboriginal First Nation community, but more communities, urban, you know, regional and remote, is a high youth crime. Yeah. It's a huge, but it comes back down to, I just want attention. Mm. They're not getting that from their parents. So the parents, you know, they're not just getting that love from and, and that nurturing. They haven't got good role models within their community. And a lot of the time, they, they, these young kids are being looked after by their grandparents mm-hmm. and that's not right. So I think one of the biggest things missing, I think, with regards to the mental health of adolescents, children in the community is just the need to be loved. Yeah. And um, as simple as that, I suppose. That's a huge fundamental, I guess, core of anyone's upbringing yeah. isn't it is a feeling of being safe and loved yeah, yeah, and yeah, supported yeah. and if that's missing then i guess 
the vulnerability and the abandonment wounds yep. come into play. Yeah, then there's a, and it, you know that creates a lot of trauma. Mm, absolutely. And you know, and you know, overcrowding in houses. You know, they've got nowhere to sleep, mm. so they just go and you know go walk walk in the community at night. Yeah, with their friends. Yeah, well, I guess in a way it's likely a – obviously it's a call for attention, which you could probably look at as a call for help too in terms of yep. them not knowing yeah. how to put up their hands so they do it in a more, yeah. I guess, destructive way. But I mm. think that could be relevant to pretty much every teenager ever <laughs> in yeah. the history of mankind. Yeah. And it's you know a good example is like Arakeen. I just come back from Arakeen a couple of weeks ago and his school started back and – and when I was there, I was being told that I think the the school there has about a couple of hundred kids, mm-hmm. but only five turned up oh, for God. the whole week. Wow! Not just one day. Wow! So what's you know got a and there's a lot of family fighting going on. So that impacts on the you know the well being of adolescents and you know children in general. Mm. Seeing that, watching, witnessing that, it can be traumatic too. Yeah, you know? definitely. And you know they. There's a lot of clashing, you know. They're, they're fighting with anything they can, with weapons and everything. So, so it's just not, you know, with hands. Mm, mm. It's, you know, they're using weapons and all that too. So that, and you know, young adolescents and you know, witnessing that can have a huge in, impact on the, you know, their health and well-being. Without a doubt. Yeah. When it comes to, I guess, your passion with relevance of helping First Nations adolescents' mental health, where does your passion lie here? <sighs> Well, being a dad myself, mm. and you know, and always wanting the best for your children, yeah, and and that sort of that quality is about being a compassionate person, you know, and having empathy for men. I've been working with men in communities for a while now, and just seeing that growth, you know, you're running these empowerment programs, and men bringing their kids along, and you can see the the change, the positive change. And that sort of keeps me going, running those empowerment programs within community. Mm. And seeing the, the positive change within community with regards to you feel like you're making a difference. Yeah. And that sort of keeps me going, I suppose. In terms of the positive change, I mean, yep. what would be the typical time frame? We might touch on uh, this a bit later too, but I'm just yeah. curious from someone yep. coming to you or putting up their hand or someone just, you know, that you cross paths with to them actually being in a better, more positive experience, what's the average time Ooh, frame that we're that's talking? A, that's a good question. How long is a piece um, of string? Yeah. <laughs> you know, basically I'm just sort of trying to think about that question. I normally about, you know, it takes a good 12 months or more. Mm-hmm. I'm just reflecting on a couple of guys who did the program with me a couple of years ago and um, and they were sort of in a good place. With, oh, not, I shouldn't say that, they sort of were, but they were down a wrong track. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, but by doing the program now, you know, one works in education and he's going really well and he's a, and he's a fo- football coach of the lower golf football team and other guy, he's, he's out there, you know, he's um, working for health services. He's also a coordinator of the rugby league comp out there in the lower golf. Mm. He puts that together mm-hmm. and they're two, two examples there. So, and that, and. With one of those guys who wanted to coordinate some football comps out there, he's, that didn't take long. Yeah, amazing. But the other guy probably took about a year. Yeah. And, and they're both in really good places now. That's great. Can you talk me through your men's groups and the empowerment frameworks that are provided? 
Yep. So the men's group that I work with, when I was working with the Royal Flying Doctor Service, through the Strong Father, Strong Family Project, I used to, in the primary health care unit, I used to go to community and run men's group meetings and run, facilitate a, an empowerment program called the Family Wellbeing Program. It's an Aboriginal program, empowerment program, actually developed here in Adelaide mm. by stolen generation people. And the South Australian Education Department picked it up, developed a program, and it's been, been rolled out since. So it's been around for a while, 1994. But through the, over that time, it's been, you know, revisited and worked and massaged and and it's actually delivered by, through South Australian TAFE, I think now. Awesome. And Alice Springs, it's a Aboriginal council there called Tunganjura. Okay. It's run through the council, that council there. It's an Aboriginal council in far north Queensland at James Cook University. That's, yeah. That's where I got trained up to be a facilitator of the program. And by delivering this program in the community, um, it's each there's five stages. Each stage is a thirty-hour pro- program, so each so that's a week. So the program can go over five to six weeks. Because the fifth stage is train the trainer. Okay. So and that you know, and it depends on who wants to take it up. But then you get them you get them signed up with the RTOs. Which, which is the Bachelor Institute in the Northern Territory mm-hmm. is one of them at Alice Springs. Oh, is that, I don't think that's a TO, but the, and the RTO down here with the TAFE, mm. South Australian TAFE, mm-hmm. sign up through that and they become students then after they finish the five stages, they go through a bit of an assessment and then, you know, if they're, if they're past it and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's only a cert two okay. in counselling. Right, yep. But it's, you know, it's a first step of further things down the track for them. Yeah, great. Let's go back to, I guess, a bit of the issue we were talking about earlier in terms of the adolescents, First Nation men or young adults per se, not having solid role models at home, which obviously then contributes to a layer of issues in their outer lives. What what other challenges do you think that they're being faced with? There's probably a myriad of them, but what would stand out to you and, and what do you think can be done to help yeah, good question. I'm just thinking about education. Mm. Like access to education or attending uh, education? It's a, it's a bit of both. Yeah. You know, and I feel like some of them don't, they don't feel like they've been heard. Yes. You know, so it's, and a lot of these schools, it's 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 that direct learning. Mm-hmm. This is what you need to learn. This is mm. not listening to what, you know. Yeah. Things that it's not culturally sensitive to the needs of the students. It's like a one size fits all approach. Yeah. And, yep. it's, and there's, there doesn't seem to be any cultural safety around that. Mm-hmm. Kids don't feel safe at school because, you know, because of what they've been taught. Yeah. So they just don't go to school. Yeah. So education, if we can get that right and get kids interested in education, I think that can make a huge difference. Yeah. Especially in community because, but then it goes back to the parents. A lot of the parents, know that, that their kids having a good education and will get into places where they, you know, mm. it's about that goal setting. Mm. They can chase, you know, have big dreams, yeah. if you like. So those, those responsible parents, they take take their kids out of community and put them into um, boarding schools, mm-hmm. yeah. which, you know, they get funding for. 
Yeah, right. Yeah. Do you feel though, I mean, I'm just thinking about the educational system that we have in place in Australia and it is primarily a one-size-fits-all approach. I haven't been at school for over 20 years, so I don't know what it's like these days. Um, But, I mean, do you think that First Nations children would be better off or have more benefit of learning about cultural and social and overall well-being strategies or improvements by being on country versus being in a classroom. A hundred percent. Yeah. And some schools, not all schools, but some schools are bringing language in to their classroom, yeah. especially the North, like the Northern Territory and they're way ahead of the game and their, their attendance rates are you know, pretty good because mm. they've got that cultural appropriateness around their education, how it works in their community. Yeah. So, yeah, just having language classes you know kids speaking their, you know being taught their language in school mm, so that, that, that makes a big difference yeah absolutely yeah Just having language yeah and you know other stuff will come with it too you know they know you know game and stack of <laughs> stuff with like you know doing cooking dampers and all that sort of yeah. stuff and, uh, yeah yeah because I honestly don't feel like if I think about my own experience with my education at school versus going out into the real world. I mean, never have I once ever used Pythagoras. Hang on, what's it even called? Pythagoras? Can't even say it. That's how important it is to me. Uh, theory or any type of, you know, science protocols that we that we learned. I mean, everything that has benefited me in my own life has been things that I've learned outside of the classroom yeah, well, by the, doing yeah, life. Yeah, life experiences, yeah. Exactly. And that's true too. Like I'm talking about your been my experience going to school back in the, you know, you know, late 70s, 80s, and I finished school in 1980, but I only went to year 10. But it's expected from me, from society in mm. general, that, you know, being an Aboriginal student, you don't do a junior, then you just go off into the labour force. Right. Like, there was no expectations on you that you'd go to university mm-hmm. and get, like, an engineering job or anything like that. Back in my day, it's just changed now. Yeah. There's a lot of support out there for First Nations students to achieve. Mm. Well, and commit, you know, and you know, within their life. Yeah. But so back, yeah, but back in my days, it wasn't anything like that, and you know, I went to school just to hang out with my mates, really. Yes. I didn't, I didn't, get, much, I didn't get much of, you know, wasn't school wasn't going back going to school and getting an education, it was going to school and hanging out with my mates. Oh, it's called a social life at school. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, but I was, but I was quite fortunate. Fortunate, I, you know, when I finished. I went to year 10, then I got a, went into TAFE. Mm. I did a block of, they call it pre-voc course. It's a 12-month course where you learn all the trades. Yeah, right. And I just decided I wanted to be a bricklayer. Oh, I don't know what I was going to say. Anyway, uh, I ended up being a bricklayer. Right. I got an apprenticeship and did that for four years. I was in the building game for 23 years. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so, you know, it's, you know, it's good, hard, honest work. Yeah, well, hard uh, being the operative word, the <laughs> physical labour, good God. Yeah, yeah. But it, in saying that, it's all also mental. Yeah. Especially when you're laying bricks, you don't want to forget to put a window there and a <laughs> door there. <laughs> That'd be a bit unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. Well, it cost you nuts a thousand dollars, a couple of thousand dollars worth. Of, That's an expensive <laughs> mistake. <laughs> yeah. Tell me, yeah. how do we pave the way forward yeah. so that the children that is a, or are part of your project, or the dads that are a part of the project, how do we ensure that their children's children have a more positive experience if they follow in their father's footsteps? Okay. I think that's a good question. It's a bit of a deep one, isn't uh, it? Yeah, but I think <laughs> the, the, when I look at it, I think how can we make 
changes that need to start with policy changes. You know, mm. like we talked to policy makers about, especially around the social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. I think it needs to, there's a lot of work needs to be done on like education, we just talked about that, but also employment. There needs to be get real jobs out there to the fellas and they go through because lot, the one thing that's stopping a lot of men in communities and, and the kids here too, we need to keep them out of like, you know, correctional centres. Yeah. But the, one of the biggest issues is with around employment is a blue card. I don't know, you just call it down here, but it's a, it's a blue card is to work with children. Okay, yep. And if you can't get a blue card, you can't you can't get really good jobs in the community mm-hmm. because all these organisations, it's one of, part of their policy. Like know. a pre-exited. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's not even a word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's part of their policy that they do. You know, they got to have one of these. And they, and they, a lot of these followers, you know, have just been in jail for just you know, drink driving, mm. not wearing a seatbelt. But that's, right. that's probably stretching it a bit. But yeah, so they're only in there for minor stuff. They mm-hmm. shouldn't be in there. For yep. Yep. And that alone can stop them from getting, you know, getting real jobs. So, yeah, so it's, it's that social, we've got to get that, so, that social determinant health right if we're going to look at our kids and look at their bright future. Because mm. you look at the overcrowding houses, there shouldn't be, people shouldn't be, there shouldn't be 20 people living in a four-bedroom home. Absolutely not. There needs to be real jobs in the community that they can go for. Because a lot of these kids, even when they go, back, go away from boarding school, they always want to come home. Yep, yep. What else is, you know, racism, racism in the Aboriginal community is, um, you probably get a lot of that reverse racism, but there's not a lot of racism. That's more in urban and mm-hmm. regional, mm-hmm. And, and but not so much in the Aboriginal community. You don't get that, the racism's not that bad. What else is there? Yeah, I think if we get all that right, and, um, and you know, this First Nation being enshrined in the Constitution mm. might be the start of getting all addressing because it goes down to, you know, truth-telling. Yep. You know, a treaty and, you know, a voice to Parliament. So I don't really know what that's going to look like, but that could be a start. Too. Yeah. We've got to start somewhere, right, and yeah. then keep pushing. And I, I think if we really look at the social determinants of health, mm. that I think underpin, you know, having an empowered community. Yeah. Is that we need to get that right. If we get that right, you know, the social and emotional well-being will sort of look after itself. Yeah, I agree with you. Physical, spiritual, you know, emotional and mental health. I'm conscious that you have a presentation to get to shortly, so we're going to have one more question for you. You've got some time, but probably need to go and prepare before you get on stage. (laughs) (laughs) And the last question I want to ask you, Lyndon, is what is your vision for the future when it comes to improving the emotional, social and mental well-being of First Nations men? Where do I see myself? Well, it's basically just continue what I'm doing. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm really hoping that this program works and if it does work and we can get more funding, you know, I'm not talking about funding, I'm talking about real dollars here. Yeah. So we can roll this out within community. But the the guys that we got employed now, we want them to become facilitators of that program. Mm-hmm. So they, it's more about the sustainability, about, you know, that at the end of the you know, end of our project, their jaw finishes. Yeah, right. Where do they go? We want to continue that employment but if that because if we're working for a university then they, they don't deliver programs we, mm. we look at the research and the projects so we got mous we got memorandum of understanding with in four communities with the medical service the aboriginal medical service it's in a pima mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and they deliver services up through the Gulf. And in Dormage, we've got a MOU with Wani Ventures, it's called. Mm-hmm. It's about job skilling for fellas, you know, getting them job ready for when they go to the mines and all that sort of stuff. Sure. Yeah, so that's where I see it all going on. Yeah, well, good stuff. I think it's such important work that you're doing. And by the sounds of it, the project and the thesis and I guess the whole entire situation that you're looking to achieve is is fairly early in its mm, yes. in its stages. But I wish you all the best with it. And I think Thank you. by the sounds of it, you're going to do a great job alongside your team and the work that you yep. do is incredibly important. So Thank you for your time this afternoon on Pebble in the Pond and I hope you have a great presentation this afternoon. I'll be in the room having a listen to you. (laughs) No pressure. No pressure. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lyndon. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.